My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode two of season five of the 21st Century Creative. And we are well and truly the 21st Century Creative today, as the eminent mathematician Marcus du Sautoy takes us on a voyage through the weird and wonderful world of AI, artificial intelligence, and how it relates to creativity, including artwork made by AI, how AI can help us be more creative, and whether AI will ever create art that is comparable to human art. Like most of the interviews this season, this one was recorded before the pandemic, so obviously we don't talk about it. But I was recently listening to an interview with Scott Galloway, a business professor on the James Altucher show, and he said the pandemic doesn't change any trends, it just accelerates them. If that's true then the trends in AI and creativity that Marcus describes in today's interview may well affect us sooner than we expect. Last week, in the 21st Century Creative Patreon group, we shared our goals for the 10 weeks of the podcast season. I made a video where I talked about my own goal for the next 10 weeks, and I also talked about some of the principles of goal setting. And the Patreon members shared their own goals in the comments to the video. If you'd like to join us, it's not too late to join in and set yourself an ambitious goal for the next 10 weeks and to use the group to share some motivation and encouragement with your fellow 21st century creatives. And right now I am taking members' questions for the first Q&A video session. So if you have a question you'd like to ask or you'd like to get my perspective on a challenge you're facing with your work or your career, then you can join us in the Patreon group at patreon.com slash the 21st century creative. As I said last week, membership is currently pay what you like, starting at just $1 per podcast episode. On a personal note, I said last week that I've been very busy behind the scenes since I released season four of the show last year. And the biggest thing I've been working on is a brand new company I've founded. The 21st Century Creative Limited. And for the new venture, I have a new business partner. Her name is Mammy McGuinness, and I'm pleased to say she's my wife as well as my business partner. The business partnership began last year when Mammy came to me and said she wanted to be a coach. It was a surprise to me when she first said it, but the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. You see, Mammy is a very experienced writer and journalist and editor. She's a Japanese national, and while she lived in Tokyo, she was a senior editor on a national magazine, where she often had to interview very successful people for feature articles. And she also had to work with talented writers and designers and illustrators and photographers week in, week out, and get the best out of them. Plus, as an editor, she's edited books by some very well-known writers in Japan, 
So she's used to working with creators at the highest level. 17 years ago, she moved to the UK, where she was lucky enough to meet me. And I was even luckier to meet her. And we got married. And all the time she's been here, she's been writing about British life and culture for publications such as the Asahi Shinbun and Japan Airlines in-flight VIP magazine. So I realised Mammy already had a lot of the skills of a coach in terms of listening and asking questions as an interviewer and also working as a creative herself and getting the best out of talented and sometimes temperamental creatives in her work as an editor. For the past few months, Mammy has been studying and practising really hard, as well as being coached by Katsutoshi Sakamoto, a remarkable coach who has been tremendously helpful to her. I've also been doing my best to help Mammy by mentoring her and sharing my experience of coaching and running a coaching business. And I'm really proud of what Mammy has achieved in that time. She's really stepped up big time because this is a big challenge. Coaching is a wonderful profession, but it's not an easy one. It demands an awful lot from you personally as well as professionally. As Rich Litvin likes to say, who was on this podcast back in season three, you can't take your clients any further than you've been yourself. So I'm delighted to say Mammy has travelled a long way since last year, and she's now working with clients mostly in her native Japanese. So... If you are a Japanese speaker, and I know from the stats that we do have listeners in Japan, and you would like to find out what it's like to be coached by Mami, you can find her at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash Mami. And Mami is spelt M-A-M-I. So, it's been an exciting journey for Mami. But I have to say, my journey to the new company has been a lot more mundane. I've been dealing with most of the admin, setting up the bank account and systems and talking to bankers and accountants and lawyers and so on. You can probably imagine it's not my happy place. And while I've delegated as much as possible, there are quite a few tasks I've had to be involved in to make sure we get everything set up right. So I've been gritting my teeth to a certain extent, But I've also been motivated by one principle that's at the core of the 21st century creative ethos, and that is creating assets. If you recall, way back in episode 5 of season 1, I encouraged you to forget the career ladder and focus on creating assets to move your creative career forward. And creating a business is a very important kind of asset. So that's been very much at the front of my mind as I ticked all the boxes on the various forms I had to fill out and throughout all the meetings and setting up of new software and systems and so on. So it's been a bit of a slog for me, but the good news is we now have the new company and systems. It's all set up and we can get to work to make the most of it. In terms of what you can expect from us, Mammy's coaching is obviously new. You won't see any major changes on my side. I'll continue to make the podcast and to offer the same coaching service and to publish my books all under the 21st century creative umbrella. The main thing that has affected you so far has been the delay in producing season five, for which I apologize sincerely. 
The good news is, now the company's in place, I'll be able to focus more on the podcast, so it shouldn't be such a long wait for season six. The first new initiative we're launching via the new company is the 21st Century Creative Patreon membership. And there are some other exciting projects in the pipeline that should start to see the light of day later this year. So, back to the present. And I know many of us are still feeling anxious and stressed about the pandemic situation as it drags on. So, before the interview with Marcus Dusotoy, I want to offer some thoughts on how we can stay calm and focused in the midst of it all. Find your still point at the centre of the storm. Depending on where you live and when you listen to this, the storm of the pandemic may be raging in different ways. You may be stuck in lockdown, anxious about loved ones, struggling with financial worries, torn between the demands of work and childcare, feeling ill yourself or caring for someone else who is ill, or simply feeling overwhelmed and pessimistic about the state of the world and the future. It's only natural to feel anxious, frustrated, or depressed as the situation drags on. It's hard to know how to respond when the situation keeps changing. But one thing has been clear to me from the start of lockdown. You have to find your still point at the centre of the storm. Wherever you are and whatever your situation, your number one job right now is to make sure you're taking care of yourself so that you can show up for your work, for your family, for your community as your most resourceful, creative and resilient self. I realise that might sound counterintuitive, you very likely have important responsibilities. And of course, it feels like an urgent priority to do what you can for others. But to rise to these challenges, it's essential that you are as calm, clear-headed and energised as possible. It's the psychological equivalent of putting on your own oxygen mask before you put on someone else's. This is a crucial time for all of us. A time when you need to be at your best. Maybe your best ever. So in the midst of the madness, it's vital that you find a little space in your day for something that centres and recharges you. It could be an exercise routine or a spiritual practice such as prayer or meditation. It could be studying or working at something that is rewarding in itself and within your control. It could be a conversation with a friend where you make each other laugh and maybe shed a tear. It could be as mundane as tidying up, mowing the lawn or doing odd jobs around the house. It could be reading something or listening to a podcast or an audiobook that offers practical advice and perspective on the current crisis. It could even be escapist entertainment like reading a novel or watching a movie. Personally, I'm very grateful for my Tai Chi practice right now. I start the day by practicing in the garden for 20 minutes 
And it's the perfect way to get centred, calm and energised for the day ahead. Poetry is something I always turn to at times of crisis. So I've been reading, writing, recording and sharing poems online. And I'm keeping up my daily 30 minutes of studying Japanese. Whatever's going on in the wider world, this is one area where I can make measurable progress every day. It's also been really nice to catch up with friends on Zoom, some of whom I haven't spoken to in months. Now, none of these things will change my situation, let alone affect the virus. Yet they all help me stay buoyant and resourceful so that I can take care of my family, serve my clients, and also do what I can to help you too. So, If you take one thing from today's podcast, I'd like it to be a commitment to make space in your day for at least one thing that will recharge you. Keep doing it and ignore the inner voice that tells you it's self-indulgent because anything that restores you will make you more valuable to others when you're called upon to help. As well as that, I suggest you focus on a very important distinction in the rest of your day, between the things that affect you and the things you can affect. Because this will help you focus your attention and efforts where you can make the biggest difference. In his classic book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey illustrates this distinction with a diagram made up of two circles, one inside the other. It looks a bit like a fried egg. The bigger circle is your circle of concern. It includes everything that affects you, such as the weather, the economy, the climate, the actions of other people, the performance of your sports team, when they're allowed to play, and of course the spread of the coronavirus around the globe. You need to be aware of the things in your circle of concern because they do concern you, but if you focus too much attention on them, you'll end up feeling anxious and disempowered. Now, look again at the fried egg. Inside the big circle, you can see a smaller circle. This is your circle of influence. It contains all the things that you can affect through your actions. The bad news is your circle of influence will always be smaller than your circle of concern. In other words, there will always be more things in life that can affect you than vice versa. But the good news is, your circle of influence gets bigger when you focus your efforts on the things inside it. And the more time you spend in your circle of influence, the more confident, creative and resourceful you will be. Today we started by looking at the thing that is closest to the centre of your circle of influence, your own mental, physical and emotional state. Having a daily habit or practice that centres you is priceless at a time like this. Beyond this, you can use the two circles to manage your state of mind and focus your efforts where they will have the biggest impact. Here are some ways you can do this. Firstly, Ration news and social media. These two are the circle of concern on steroids. Right now, 
many social media platforms are firehoses of anxiety. Many news channels aren't much better. Yes, you need to stay informed, but don't keep checking obsessively. Maybe have certain times of the day when you check in for information. Secondly, look at the big picture of your life and your work right now. Ask yourself, what are the things in my small circle that will have the biggest positive impact over the weeks and months ahead? These will probably include doing what you can to reduce transmission, washing your hands, maintaining social distancing, and so on. Making sure family members, particularly the vulnerable or elderly, know how to protect themselves and that they have what they need. Changing your work habits to stay creative and productive. And last but not least, identifying mission-critical tasks to keep your work on track and or your business afloat. Every morning, focus yourself for the day ahead by asking yourself, what's in my small circle today? And finally, any time you find yourself feeling anxious, angry or overwhelmed, ask yourself, what am I getting agitated about? And is it in my circle of concern or my circle of influence? If it's in your circle of concern, do your best to let go of it and stop thinking about it. Instead of worrying about the circle of concern, find something in your circle of influence that can have a positive effect on this issue, or at least distract you from it. If it's in your circle of influence, ask yourself, what's the next practical step I can take about this? And go and do that. Have you ever listened to me talking on this podcast and thought, that's all very well, Mark, but how does it apply to my situation? Or is there a burning question that you really wish I would answer on the show because it affects you and your work in an important way? Or have you ever found yourself facing a challenge or setting yourself a big ambitious goal and thought it might be nice to get my perspective on your situation? Well. Now's your chance. As a 21st century creative member, you can ask me any question you like about your creative work, your career, your creative business, or your personal and professional development. I'll answer the questions in the members area in a series of Q&A videos to accompany each season of the podcast. You'll also get goal-setting and accountability videos, as well as insights and tips that don't appear on the podcast, plus the chance to interact with other 21st century creatives. And to make the membership as accessible as possible, especially bearing in mind the pandemic situation, it's currently pay what you want, with a suggested payment of just one US dollar per episode, meaning you get all the exclusive members' videos and other benefits for only $10 a season. To learn more about 21st Century Creative Membership, go to patreon.com slash the 21st Century Creative. That's patreon.com slash the 21st Century Creative.
Ever since I started this podcast, I've wanted to talk to an expert on creativity and artificial intelligence, or AI. So I've been on the lookout for someone who can not only explain AI from the technical viewpoint, but who also understands the artistic mindset and motivations. Someone who can join the dots from one to the other and suggest what we as creative practitioners can learn from AI and help us understand whether it's an opportunity or a threat for creators. I found all of this and more in Marcus Dussotoy's book, The Creativity Code, How AI is Learning to Write, Paint and Think. Marcus is the Charles Simoni Professor for the Public Understanding of Science at Oxford University. As well as conducting his own research, he's well known for his work popularising mathematics on television and radio and via his lectures, newspaper articles and seven books. His awards include an OBE and a Fellowship of the Royal Society. Marcus's latest book, The Creativity Code, is a fascinating tour of the past, present and potential future of AI and how it relates to games, art, music, poetry and storytelling. The book also discusses the relationship between creativity and mathematics and opens up some of the big existential questions relating to AI and creativity, such as authenticity, empathy and consciousness. As soon as I finished reading the book, I reached out to Marcus and he generously agreed to talk to me for the show. I must admit, I've always felt a bit intimidated by maths. At school, it felt very cold and cerebral. So I wasn't sure quite what to expect of an eminent professor of mathematics from Oxford University. But when I spoke to Marcus, he was charming and engaging, and he has an infectious enthusiasm for his subject. He really helped me see maths in a new light, as a creative discipline in its own right, and also one that can shed new light on artistic forms of creativity. This is a fascinating interview in which we explore the current state of AI creativity and how it plays out in games like chess and Go, as well as in music, poetry and other art forms. And towards the end, we open up some of those big questions about AI and creativity. Marcus shares some very interesting thoughts on whether or not AI will ever be able to produce real art. So, if you're curious about AI and the future of creativity, whether you feel optimistic, enthusiastic, sceptical, or even fearful about AI, I think you'll find plenty of food for thought in this conversation with Marcus Dusotoy. Marcus, what's it like to be a mathematician? Well, I think most people think that as a research mathematician, I must be sitting in my office in Oxford doing long division to a lot of decimal places. <laughs> um, and if that were true, I'd be out of a job by now because clearly computers uh, can do calculations faster than I can. But I've actually always called uh, mathematics a very uh, creative activity um, I really call myself a storyteller, a storyteller with numbers and geometry. And I'm not just 
producing kind of all the true statements about numbers and geometry that are possible. Uh, I think that'd be a bit like um, uh, one of my favorite short stories is Borges's Library of Babel. And in the oh, yeah. library, there's absolutely every book possible. And I think mm. many people think that's maybe what a mathematician is trying to do. But actually, no, I'm making a lot of choices um, about the things that I think are an interesting journey through the mathematical world. And and so those choices are driven a lot by aesthetics, uh, by um, a kind of an emotional response to the kind of twists and turns of that story. Um, so for me, mathematics is a highly creative subject. It involves that choice. It involves a connection with uh, other fellow mathematicians that I want to take them on a kind of surprising journey, take them somewhere new, um, kind of, uh, yes, engage their emotional world. So and actually, the book that kind of inspired me to become a mathematician was a book called A Mathematician's Apology, written by a Cambridge mathematician, G.H. Hardy. And in there, he really talks about what it means to be a mathematician. And I'd actually recommend this to anyone to read, uh, regardless of where you come from, because it really captures the kind of creative side of being a mathematician. Um, he calls a mathematician like a painter or a poet, but we, we paint with ideas. Hmm, that sounds very intriguing. And I mean, there's one thing in the book you talk about mathematical proofs or stories being beautiful as well as true. Would you say that's a common motivation for mathematicians to find beauty? Well, the word beauty is used a lot, but I think it's a much uh, richer uh, kind of emotional engagement than just finding something beautiful. Uh, I think you can find something quite shocking, uh, and that's absolutely uh, a sort of valid response um, where you thought something was going to happen and then completely opposite happens. I mean, that's a, a, mm -hmm. a delightful moment in mathematics. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, that's why I feel um, when I, you know, people talk about a close connection between mathematics and music, for example. I often talk yeah. about mathematics being the, the science of patterns and music being the art of patterns. Um and, and there again, you know, you can have beautiful music, but you can have music with very many different sort of colours to it. And I feel the sort of qualities that one is enjoying on, on a kind of musical journey are, are very similar to the ones I'm looking for in a mathematical journey. And you are a musician yourself, aren't you? Yes, interestingly, I uh, fell in love with mathematics and music around the same time. I uh, teachers in school. I was a comprehensive school in Oxfordshire. Uh, my maths teacher kind of uh, ignited my mathematical curiosity about 12 or 13. And that's when my music teacher actually said, well, do you want to learn a musical instrument? And um, I ended up learning the trumpet. And that's the, the two have been very close on my kind of my professional journey. So um, I still play the trumpet for two amateur orchestras in London, started learning the cello, in fact, just about to do uh, a concert with the Oxford Philharmonic Orchestra, exploring how composers use mathematical structures um, in their composition. And, and I think that's what's really striking because I spent a lot of time over the last few decades talking to creative artists. And time and again, I find that the things that they're interested in um, have a kind of structural underpinning that I recognize as a mathematician. Um, and I think that's a really fascinating thing that I think people think that uh, creative art, certainly from the outside, is is sort of something mysterious. But actually, when you talk to a composer or a, um, a visual artist, they will say, no, these structures are really important to 
to allow me to to hang my thoughts on and and they're looking for interesting structures to push them often in in new directions that they'd never thought of going in before yeah you know as i was reading the descriptions of music and mathematics in your book it made me think about poetic form because at least for traditional poetic forms there's a lot of mathematics in you know things like the iambic pentameter or the sonnet or the Terzarima that Dante used, or you know, and I think personally, as a as a practitioner who uses a lot of these traditional forms, I find them very beautiful in in exactly the kind of way you're describing. Just the the intrinsic form of the sonnet, I think there is a, a balance and a natural tension that hopefully gets um, built up and resolved in the course of the poem. And, and mathematics has to come into that. Uh, totally. You know, it used to be that poets talked about their numbers because they're always counting the number of beats in the lines. So so maybe it's not as far apart as, as it might seem at first glance. I, I think you're absolutely right. And it, I think it's um, sort of almost part of our human species that we're we're looking for things with patterns because they help us to to navigate our natural environment. And, and often those patterns or structures that you're seeing both uh, of, of interest to the mathematician and, you know, u- used by the artist, they often have a common source um, in the natural world. Um, but I think the other interesting thing about structure for an artist is that it can take you in a compli- in a new direction. I mean, Stravinsky always used to say, I can only be creative under huge constraints. Um, yeah. So I think that's the lovely thing about a, a poetic a form that often you'll be you'll have to think of a kind of intriguing way to say something that you wouldn't naturally have said because perhaps you're trying to follow that iambic pentameter or, or the rhyming scheme of the sonnet. And, and, and that's kind of exciting uh, when you've actually got these constraints which kind of push you um, into the new. Yeah, that's very true. Particularly rhyme, I think, because, you know, when you, you you have your first thought and you think, oh, damn, it doesn't rhyme. And so I've got to come think of something else that does. <laughs> and yeah, it exactly. Yeah. you into places that you haven't heard of. And, you know, if you do it well, then you end up being somewhere that's surprising to you and, and also emotionally resonant and therefore will be hopefully the same for, for the reader. Yeah, I think that's right. Yes. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, Shakespeare, for example, was very number obsessed. I only discovered this kind of recently, but you mentioned iambic pentameter, which yeah. is obviously 10 beats. Um, but when he wants you to really concentrate, he disrupts that. So you're able to use this kind of pattern to be able to almost read something special that's happening in the text. Yeah, and he was doing that against a background. People, kind of the contemporaries who come just before him, had established a very, very regular iambic pentameter. If you look at Marlowe or Kidd or somebody, it's much more almost metronomic. And then Shakespeare comes in and starts messing about with it. More than, I mean, ev- everyone was doing it to agree, but but he took it to an extreme, which is one of the things that made him interesting. Yes, but I think this is going to be uh, the interesting challenge you see uh, when you then turn to something like artificial intelligence and the arts, because um, I think many people's belief is that artificial intelligence um, will only be able to recreate what we've already seen. So it'll be pastiche. So how would it ever break out of um, the idea of just sticking within a kind of particular iambic pentameter? How could it actually have that insight to add a beat? Um, And I think that's the interesting challenge, you know, that... um, can AI take us really into the new, or is it just doing more of the same? So what was it for you personally that you found interesting about 
AI, artificial intelligence, you know, why, why didn't you just stick to, you know, more traditional fields of mathematics? What was the attraction of AI? Well, I think that we're all kind of intrigued at the moment about how much um, AI can do, because we've we're really going through a kind of AI heat wave. Um, you know, we've had these things called AI winters uh, where nothing seems to really work. And uh, But suddenly the last few years, uh, you know, there's been a real step change. And I think for me, what suddenly got me uh, interested in this area and which actually was the spark for writing this book um, was seeing uh, a piece of code be creative for the first time. Um, this wasn't in kind of the arts, but actually within a confines of a game. So the, a piece of code was created to play um, this ancient Chinese game called Go, which is played on a 19 by 19 board, uh, a grid. You put black and white stones down, try and surround your opponent's territory before they surround yours. Um, and this was always traditionally regarded as a very hard game to code up because when you play it, there's a lot of kind of pattern recognition on the board, which is quite hard to articulate why you're doing something, a lot of intuition, a lot of creativity. Um, but what has changed is that code in the past was written in a very top-down manner so that somehow the human who wrote the code had to know what to tell the machine what to do. So we had to sort of really understand it. But code now is being written from a kind of bottom-up way, something called machine learning. And this allows the code to change and mutate as it encounters new data. Um, so in the case of this game, it was given human games to learn on and then started playing itself, making synthetic games. Um, and through its playing, it changed the code to try and sort of uh, optimize certain moves that it could see were being very powerful. But then when it played the, uh, in a match against one of the best humans we have, Lee all, what I saw was it suddenly making a move that um, nobody had expected at all. It was it's now become famous. Uh, it's called Move 37 in Game 2 of this <laughs> match. And what happened in this game? Because this uh, piece of code played a move that all the commentators, when they were uh, commentating on the match, said, wow, that's a really weak move. Um, it was they it laid a stone on the fifth row in from the edge. And early on in the game, that's considered a really weak move. Um, and uh, all the commentators said, well, the human should be able to win from now. Um, mm. But in the end, it turned out that that move, um, very late on in the game, meant that um, the piece of code, AlphaGo it's called, um, actually controlled a large swathe of territory and it won um, the code, the game. Um, so for me, this is very interesting because I think that's what I'm looking for is something a surprising move where everyone's kind of shocked by it, but something which ultimately has value. You don't want just surprise for yeah. the sake of it. You want value. Uh, now, you can judge those things very nicely in the confines of a game. But um, you see, if a human had written that code, a human says you shouldn't play that far into the board on the fifth row in. It would have written, the human would have written a piece of code saying don't make that move. And for me, what was so exciting was seeing this code actually find a very powerful mood move on its own from its learning process a move now which humans incorporate into the playing of the game we have been pushed into a new way to play this game and for me that was a really exciting moment and i realized hold on okay if this is just a game where else can this kind of learning process of code encountering data take us into somewhere where we've never even thought of going before and so that was the beginning of my journey of this book you know okay what about if it considers the the visual realm, the musical realm, the, the written word, or even mathematics? Could it 
perhaps make move 37 in game two in any of these realms and actually sort of show us new ways to do things. So before we go on to to, to look at some of those questions, I really want to underline this for anyone who's coming to this afresh, that this was, it was literally a game-changing move. It was unexpected. It had the criteria of novelty and value, which is one of the classic definitions of creativity. And it came from the machine learning by itself. This wasn't something that had been programmed in or could be predicted by the programmers. It thought this up by itself, so to speak. That's right. And I think that's um, the the game changer, as you said, that um, uh, this is why this new sort of code, which can take data um, and, and sort of see something new in it and, and help us to... Uh, to change our behaviors. You see, I think as creative artists, um, and I'll count myself in there as a mathematician, I think that we can get very stuck in particular ways of doing things. Um, That, you know, we find something is quite successful and we kind of repeat that behavior. You'll see that in uh, musicians who will have a particular style and they'll get a bit locked into that style. Um, And so uh, actually we start behaving more like machines, just repeating behaviors. And the exciting thing is that I'm seeing in the stories that I've looked at in this book that this new tool of artificial intelligence, which uh, people, you know, often it's a story told with a very dystopian sort of take that it's going to wipe us out. Yeah. No, I don't see this as a competitor. I see this as an amazing collaborator in the creative process, actually helping us as humans to behave less like machines and perhaps show us new ways to do things. So I think it's an extraordinary powerful tool for a creative to actually suggest new ways of looking at uh, what we're doing. So could you give us some examples? Because you've, you've got some really extraordinary stories in the book of AI as applied to artistic creativity. I mean, quite often it is, you know, it's the chess champion beating or the Go champion beating stories that, that make the headlines. But can you give us an idea of, you know, if anybody's thinking, well, that's all very well for games, but I'm an artist, I'm special. Yes. Exactly. Um, Give give us some examples that might show us a different way of looking at that. Well, let's take music um, to start with, because, you know, music has got a lot of pattern in there. And of course, you know, if you listen to, you turn on the radio and you hear um, a piece of music, uh, you can probably identify perhaps who the composer is if you've listened to a lot of music because they have particular styles. So um, that's something that, you know, artificial intelligence is very good at kind of spotting the the key characteristics that make up a style. Um, so I uh, tell a story of a jazz musician who had a very particular style, Bernard Lubat. He's a jazz pianist. And when you hear him improvising, you'll probably recognize if you, if you know uh, his kind of style. Oh, oh, yes, that's him. And they had uh, Sony Labs in Paris developed something called the uh, um, Jazz Continuator. And this piece of AI listened to uh, the pianist uh, playing away and started to, to analyze kind of statistically the sort of patterns that um, he was making with the notes um, and then was able to start uh, playing live with him in sort of in a call response uh, manner. And interestingly, an audience uh, was uh, challenged with listening to this and was asked to see if they could identify the human from uh, the AI. And often they, int- they attributed uh, the human t- 
to the AI because it sounded more complicated and kind of richer exploration. <laughs> and, and this was Bernard Lubat's response. He said, wow, gosh, well, that's amazing. I, I, I could have played like that, but I've never ever thought of playing like that. And, but the weird thing was, he said, I, I, but I recognize that world. That sound world is my world. Um, so in a way, this wasn't pushing into the new. It was just showing Bernard Lubat w- new things that he could do with his material. So it wasn't asking him to com- become a completely different musician. It was just saying, you know what, you got kind of stuck in a particular way of playing. Um, it's as if uh, he was playing in the, in the corner of a room and only the corner was lit. And suddenly the AI uh, lit up the whole of the room and said, look, there are many other places you could explore. Um, with your sound world. Um, so for me, that's a, a, a very exciting story because it's a, a tool that was used to expand his kind of repertoire. I love that story. That that was one of the standouts for me. And I remember thinking, what what would it be like to be Bernard Lubat when he's hearing that? It must have been quite eerie. And I was... Almost his reaction, I thought, was as interesting as the story itself of, you know, of, of what yes. the continuator could do because he could have felt threatened, you know, and if he was not a confident artist, maybe he would. Maybe he would start critiquing, finding fault or, or whatever, but actually he embraced it. He said, actually, this can make me better. It can open up. It shows me myself from a different angle. Yes, exactly. I, I, and I think this is the point, you see, um, uh, y- you know, often when I show people images and then I say, well, that's um, been painted by AI, for example, I think their first reaction is they feel very cheated because, mm. of course, you actually, when you're encountering a piece of art, the, the feeling is you want to have a conversation with the artist, with another human being, with another uh, consciousness, and another way of seeing the world. And and then you say, oh, well, that's been made by AI. You feel very, uh, that, that feeling of being cheated. But then again, you know, if I tell you a joke and you laugh at the joke, and then I say, well, that joke was actually composed by a piece of artificial intelligence, that doesn't invalidate the laughter that you just went through. So it's interesting, that response to um, a piece of art and then the need to know um, actually the, the source, so the, the story behind how it was created. Um, uh, but again, you've got to remember that a lot of these tools that are being used, they're taking human data to learn from. So in a way, this is just kind of a filter or, or, an, or an exploration of the the kind of emotional world that we've created in our art. So it's not surprising that um, what it's producing um, is, give, you know, whether we're having an emotional response to it because it's learned on our emotional world. Yeah, interesting. I did have that experience. So there was one section, obviously I honed in on the poetry section of the book. And there's that, there's a wonderful website you introduced me to called Bot or Not, where you have to, it shows you a poem and and you have to decide, was that written by AI? Or was it written by a human? Yes. And the one instance of, so I took the, you know, the, the 10 question test. And there was one poem that fooled me that it was by an AI and I thought it was a human was a very short joke. <laughs> and it was it was a silly joke, but I just thought, oh, that it made me laugh. And I think probably because I laughed, I thought, oh, that's got to be somebody falling about. It kind of looked yes. heartless and silly, but it's it's it but actually that was I think it was compiled from Google predictive text or something. Right. Yes. Um so that was really quite an interesting experience taking that test and 
I think a lot of this maybe applies to audiences rather than the artists themselves. I mean, you have a wonderful description of David Cope when he comes up with a fake Bach symphony with his program. I can't remember what it was called. Aaron, yes. And it managed to fool, he managed to fool some some quite well-educated audiences, didn't he? Yes. Um, I mean, that's very interesting because I've done a similar exercise actually um, uh, here in London in the Barbican uh, this uh, year. And uh, what I did was to get a piece of AI with a PhD student. Um, we got the AI to learn on Bach. And Bach, of course, is, is great to learn from because there's so much pattern in there. It's, I mean, I talk in the, the book actually about the kind of algorithmic way that Bach often wrote. He he actually composed the something called the musical offering um, and wrote it as a set of little algorithms. You sort of have to solve these puzzles. Um, you're given one line of music and there's a weird uh, sort of clef upside down at the end of the music and you realise, oh, actually, I've got to play this t- twice, one, forwards and backwards at the same time. So um, Bach has a lot of kind of code already in his work. But what we did was we created a sort of, piece which was one piece but it went in and out of Bach and AI so you were never quite sure as you were listening to it well this might be some of it was human and some of it was AI so it wasn't just a simple dichotomy Um, and then we asked the audience to kind of vote with cards uh, throughout the performance of this four minute piece um, when they thought it was human and when they thought it was AI Mm -hmm. and uh, the audience just found it almost impossible to there was no clear moment when everyone said, oh yeah, this is clearly not human. But the one person who could tell um, was uh, Mahanes Vahani, who was the harpsichord player. And he said, I know exactly the moment it goes to AI because suddenly it becomes really difficult to play. (laughs) And this is fascinating because, of course, you know, the AI doesn't care about embodiment. Um, it can write notes, <laughs> right, uh, but it right. doesn't have to play them. Bach was a master at writing, um, you know, wonderful music, but also music that could be played uh, very nicely with that the, the fingers. You know, the fingering was important. Um, so this is a really interesting uh, sort of point which separates often AI art and human art is the the question of embodiment um, and. I've seen actually that AI um, often becomes overcomplicated in some sense because it can cope with complication. Even um, uh, with Bernard Lubat and the jazz continuator, the jazz continuator was starting to get of a complexity that actually Bernard Lubat would actually find it quite difficult to to reproduce what the AI was doing. Um, and, And this is interesting because, you know, we have our, sensory equipment to engage with the world around us, our eyes, our ears, our sense of touch, smell. And this kind of uh, is limits our kind of engagement with the world such that uh, the art that an AI might produce might actually push the complexity such that we as humans are finding it very difficult with our sensory equipment to engage with this. And actually, one of my favorite AI films um, is Her, which is oh, a yeah. film where so you've seen this film. Have, a, um, if anyone's not, not seen it, it's, it's a great film. It's uh, so um, you know this guy splits up with his girlfriend or something, and there's the, the chance to have an AI girlfriend for a while. And um, so he sort of in, engages with this thing online. Um, of course, falls in love with the AI girlfriend. It's so good, um, at pretending to be real. Um, 
But the, the wonderful moment for me is when the AI girlfriend um, dumps the human um, and says, oh, you humans are just so slow. It takes ages to interact with you. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've got to know millions of AI online in a split second where we're going, you know, excitingly into the new. Um, and that for me kind of revealed something which I think is going to be very striking as we go forward, that um, as AI becomes more and more sophisticated, um, uh, actually, it'll probably only enjoy interacting with other AI. And it'll look at us humans, probably as we humans look at uh, at a forest or mountains, you know, they don't seem to change mountains. Yeah. But if you did speed up time, mm. of course, mountains are very dynamic things. So, um, uh, so it's, it's interesting that question and embodiment is really um, important, uh, I think, for this human AI interaction. And also, I'm wondering, it's you know, listening to you talk, whether there's a diff- fundamental difference in the way audiences respond and creators respond, because. Oh, that's very interesting. Yes. One of the things, the constant themes in the various stories is people feeling cheated or angry, or there's a wonderful description of delighted horror among the classical music buffs when they realized they picked the wrong back as the real one. Yes. Um, But then the artists and the the musicians, they seem to be more interested in, oh, great. Well, technically this, this, this is a really interesting thing. Like, oh, it's impossible to play that on the harpsichord or... Um, Bernard Lubat looking at, oh, this is showing me new possibilities. So do you think there's maybe that the audiences and readers might look at things more romantically than the actual practitioners themselves? Yes. And that's partly why I wanted to write this book and, and show people that actually a lot of um, creative process um, has a, a kind of uh, there's a lot of mathematics in the creative process that people are looking for kind of yeah. uh, rules, patterns, structures. Um, and I think there's a terrible romanticization of um, the creative uh, act that it's all about um, uh, sort of expressing emotions or uh, uh, it's all deeply mysterious. And, and when you talk to a practitioner, um, I remember uh, doing a program about Philip Glass and Philip Glass saying, um, you know, people find my music very emotional, but I don't write the emotion in. The emotion comes out of the structure. I write these kind of interesting patterns and algorithms and then the emotion appears. And, and I think that for me, it was uh, one of the points of the book was to show people that uh, a lot of the creative process um, has kind of the, these rules. And, and therefore, those rules are things which are interesting because they could be implemented in, in code and you can see where else you go them with them. But I think your your point about the audience is very interesting because I think that's why when you talked about the poetry uh, test, why poetry perhaps can trick you more easily than many other forms. Because I think poetry, when a poet writes a poem, they often want to leave room for the audience to bring their own bit of creativity to the reading. Yeah. You, you don't want everyone to have the same response. Um, and so that's why I think, especially poetry, um, has a lot of space. It's a conversation. And this is a conversation between the reader and the poet. And the reader will bring some of their own creativity to the reading of that poem. And so if you've got something written by a piece of AI, um, often it can sort of pass an AI uh, art Turing test. Uh, The human will be sort of think it's human written because they will bring a lot of their own sort of response to that poem. 
Yeah, that's a, a really interesting point. I'm reading Don Patterson's book about the poem, uh, you know, how poetry works. And he says poetry is as much a mode of reading as it is of writing. So Very interesting, yes. If, if we treat something a bit like Duchamp's urinal, if we treat it as poetry, then it becomes poetry because we're, we're looking for significance in it. And, you know, obviously I was looking at this bot or not test and thinking, well, it works on some kinds of poetry, but other kinds I don't think it does. So mm. the stuff that I think is most susceptible to that is the kind of very fractured, gnomic, modernist type of verse that, to put it bluntly, doesn't always seem to make sense, but you, yes. you're supposed to look at it and, and find something deep in it. Um, it works for nonsense verse, because again, the disjunction is is kind of part of the charm. It doesn't need to to hold together. It could work for surrealism, I think. It worked on me with a joke. Yes, um, I don't think it works on anything where you want more coherence. Uh, that's right. And, and a sense of... Yeah, I think, you see, I, I was very struck, actually, uh, in writing this book, you know, which, which um, art forms um, is AI being most successful in? Um, and uh, it struck me that the visual world, it is actually being very successful. Yeah. Uh, this machine learning has produced tools which can recognise images now. Um, you know, that's quite a, a big challenge. You give it a, a, a picture to be able to decode, you know, what's relevant, what's important, and say what's in the picture was always a, a huge challenge for AI. And, and now this learning process has allowed AI to recognize images very clearly. And so it can now also generate them. Music as well, because of those kind of uh, the, the patterns in a particular um, kind of, you know, it's, it's a sort of closed form, a bit like a game. Of course, it connects to our emotional world. Yeah. Um, but the spoken word is, I was quite surprised how, um, actually, AI is still really struggling with the spoken word and uh, the written word, <laughs> spoken and well, written. Well, um, uh, well, both actually. Yeah. yeah so, um, and I think it is uh, partly. You know, it can do short form, yeah, um, like like a poem. And actually, I got uh, uh, three hundred and fifty words of my book is written um, by a piece <laughs> of artificial intelligence. And you know, it was so successful that nobody's identified those three hundred. I I haven't spotted it. When you read that, I thought, oh gosh, I wonder which where that was well don't worry not even my editor Ooh, has really? spotted it so <laughs> yeah so which i find deeply depressing that you know surely because uh, i think it looks terrible it uh, reads terribly and um just what, what a poor statement it is on my own writing um but one of the things i think here is um that of course language and writing is so much more than just the words um so the ai might be able to know the definition of the words but um the sort of context of the whole thing you know there's yeah. cultural context historical context um and this is you know there are things called winograd challenges um which are uh, actually given to um uh, an ai if it's trying to pass the turing test because it's very difficult to, for an ai to sniff out what a particular word might refer to whilst we will be able to see the context very clearly i mean if i say um the government banned the demonstrators from marching because they feared violence. You know that they, the they refers to the government. Yeah. But if I change that to they advocated violence, you know that they refers to the demonstrators. Mm -hmm. Now, an AI just is completely thrown by that yeah. because you need so much historical context yeah. for that somehow to know that demonstrators might be violent or um the government might fear so that's really interesting that the uh, the written word spoken word um i think there's 
it's depending on it's, you know a lot of years of evolution in the human brain to develop language and and it seems quite hard for the AI to fast track that. So novelists out there, you're safe, I think. Yeah, for now, aren't they? I mean, because <laughs> the now. things you talk about is that longer narrative arc that it's hard for, yes. for the AI to do. And I think in poetry, it's, it's you know, the bigger conceptual arc in a poem like, I don't know, say, Ode to a Nightingale or yes. The Western Weddings. It, you're not going to get anything as coherent as that as yet from an AI. But, uh, you know, and even in the music chapter, you can you conclude that, AI can churn out Muzak, but not quality music. Yes, uh, I think that's right. You, you see, the jazz continuator, for example, yeah. it's quite fun to listen to it for a few minutes, but after a while, it just becomes boring. I could not listen to an hour of that because I don't feel it's really going anywhere. Um, so uh, it's very interesting that I think something which has a temporal element to it, um, AI is, you know, it can do sort of local uh, generation of something interesting, yeah. um, but still not the the global. So, which is interesting because you know that's quite. You can use that as a tool, as a creative, um, to perhaps stimulate you to go in a new direction. But then you will then piece those together to to make something which has a, a global coherent narrative. So at, at the moment, I think you have this lovely phrase. You say at the moment they're, they're telescopes and was it tools and telescopes rather than authors when it comes to story? Yeah, like like the the the. Yeah, exactly. Suddenly we're able to see um, distant planets that we could never yes. see before. So I think, you know, that is the exciting thing. We, we've got this as a tool um, to examine uh, data more deeply, find things that we've kind of missed in there. So, But I think it, it is a tool. I think it's sort of a little bit um, like when suddenly the, the, the camera came onto the scene yeah. uh, to be able to, to suddenly see the world around you through this filter in a different way and explore what could be done with it. It's, it isn't just simply about reproducing um, what's there. I mean, as Paul Clay said, you know, art doesn't um, reproduce the visible, it makes things visible. Um, mm. So what I'm hoping is, you know, this people will find that this uh, AI kind of tool for creativity can, can make things visible that, weren't, that we weren't seeing before. Okay, so that's the, where we're at currently. But what about the future? I mean, given the, the capability of machine learning to surprise us, you know, move 37 in game two. Yes. What, what do you think? The, could it evolve to the point where AI could create art that we would say actually that is comparable, indistinguishable on a, on a bigger scale or even a more moving scale to humans? Well, I think that you're already seeing um, uh, sort of uh, creative acts by uh, a computer that are pretty convincing and people are taken in by. But I think, that, you know, really, this is only going to become interesting um, when AI needs to say something to us. Um, and for me, you know, where does the our urge to create art come from? I think it's because um, it, it, it's a quality of us being conscious that we have an internal world that we want to explore our own internal worlds and we use our art as an exploration of that. We want to share the way we see the world and sort of uh, explore whether others see the world like that or perhaps we feel we've got a, a, a new way to engage with our environment. We want to share that. So, I mean, Carl Rogers describes creativity as exactly that, the, the kind of examination of the internal world. So for me, I don't think... This is really going to be interesting until um, uh, AI has its own internal world uh, and it 
it suddenly has the need to express that. Because, you know, I use a word later on in the book, intentionality. Where is the intention coming from? Well, you know, that piece of code that played that game didn't want to play that game. It was the human that set yeah. it on the game. And it, it played the game very well. And it, it saw its goal. It had a goal, which was to beat its opponent. But still, you know, the intention was still coming from a human. And I think, you know, once consciousness, consciousness emerges in uh, code, and I say once, I do think it will. Yeah. Um, I don't see anything. I don't know how long it will take, but <laughs> I don't see anything um, a priori reason why it shouldn't. We are just a bunch of atoms put together in a very complex way, developed over millions of years of evolution. And, you know, it caused us to have this internal sense of ourselves. Um, I think there will become a moment when that will happen in machines. Um, And you see, I I make a little kind of speculation in the book that I think that um, our, our drive to be artistic and our sense of consciousness, I believe, could well have occurred about the same time, maybe 40,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's when we see uh, the human species starting to kind of explore art for its own sake, drawing things on the walls. You know, it's not utilitarian. This is somehow, uh, you know, those hands on the wall are, are a kind of expression of um, an, an existential expression. You know, here I am, sort of, it's they're saying. Um, so I think that... Really, this is only going to become interesting when AI has an internal world. However, in some ways, I would say that's already perhaps beginning to emerge. Not a consciousness, certainly, Mm -hmm. but but we are developing code that because it's changing, mutating, learning, becoming very different from what the human originally wrote down, um, this code, uh, we need to have ways to examine quite how it's thinking how it's seeing the world, how it's making its decisions. Because after all, we're being pushed and pulled around by algorithms. Um, And so, you know, as we go forward, we're going to need tools to be able to really understand why it's making those decisions. Um, So I think some of the most interesting art projects um, from AI aren't actually um, about uh, creating art that we humans think are interesting. They're about creating art that can help us to understand the internal kind of decision process of the code. It's almost as if code has got its own subconscious now because um, it's so complex, the code, after the kind of machine learning process that when we look at it, we don't really... Uh, it's too complex for us to navigate quite how it's making its decisions. So some of the most interesting stories um, uh, in the book, I think, as far as art are concerned, are helping us to understand the code. So... My favorite one is actually uh, something called Deep Dream. Um, oh, yeah. And actually, you, you asked me, a, you gave me a challenge um, to uh, think of something that people can try out um, after having listened to this yeah. uh, and explore sort of uh, using perhaps AI for creativity. Um, and this is the one I'm going to offer people because it's something called um, Deep Dream. Um, this is a, a kind of project that Google developed, um, they said, okay, look, we have an amazing image recognition software. Give it an image, it can recognize what's in that image. But what is it really seeing? Um, So they decided to kind of reverse the process. And they gave it um, kind of a random load of pixels or an image which didn't really have anything clear in it. And just asked the software to uh, accentuate anything it was seeing in that image. Um, And this allows us actually to see um, how code itself is seeing what you know how it's learned and so when you do this what's extraordinary is 
you start to see lots of kind of animals emerging within a, a, an image, um, lots of eyes, lots of faces, because this is what the AI has been given to, to learn on, the data that it's learned from, um, lots of mechanical things. Um, so I gave it a picture of a string quartet I play with for, and um, when it went through this filter, suddenly the first violinist turned into a kind of leopard and the other three of us, I play the cello in this quartet, um, turned into a kind of uh, motor car. Um, and it was very interesting sort of seeing this. But this has been used, for example, to show bad learning that's occurring in code. So, for example, um, the, the Deep Dream was given kind of grey sort of pixel background and started to see dumbbells appearing inside these images. But weirdly, the dumbbells that appeared always had arms attached to them. Why? Because the software had only ever seen images of dumbbells being held by strong men and women. And so it thought it was part of our anatomy. Um, it had never <laughs> seen a dumbbell on its own. So this uh, kind of art is helping us to see when things are going wrong, that it's actually not learnt properly. Um, and I think this is really striking because I did an event last year with a woman from MIT Media Lab. She's a roboticist. And she'd had some, she told me this story of how she'd had some robots delivered to the lab and she'd uh, sort of opened them up, switched them on, and they had some uh, vision recognition software to see when somebody was in front of the robot. And when she went in front of them, it didn't see anybody there until she put a white mask on. And then suddenly these robots started responding. And she was a black woman. And so she uh, lifted up the kind of bonnet of the um, software and understood that the code had only ever been given pictures of white men to learn on. Oh, dear. And so I think, you know, using these artistic tools as a way to explore um, the way a piece of code might be thinking um, might really be a powerful tool for, uh, for us going forward to make sure that we keep control. So actually, my, my challenge for uh, kind of creatives um, is, because uh, it's quite an easy thing to experiment with, but, you know, the, uh, it's, a, it's a visual challenge. Um, but to, to take an image and to upload it to uh, this thing called Deep a Deep Dream Generator, um, and you can then try and use this tool to, to kind of augment the image and sort of, it's almost a conversation with the uh, piece of code. Yeah. Um, so you start to see the image changing, mutating. Um, and so I think it's quite an interesting experiment just to interact with code, see how code is seeing your image, how it would change it, and whether that gives you any ideas for um, for your own perhaps visual uh, generation to see uh, uh, whether it's helping you to to see things in a new way. So um, it's quite fun. Um, it's quite simple to use. Um, but the kind of challenge is, you know, what images actually do, do you have an interesting conversation with this piece of AI and what images somehow don't, don't work for this? So, um, so I, I hope people might have fun just trying that. I, I enjoyed uh, playing around with it and I felt like, wow, I'm, the art that is coming out of here is helping me to understand a bit more deeply um, how an AI is working. Well, that does sound terrific fun. So that's Google's Deep Dream. Yeah, so the website they need to go to is called deepdreamgenerator.com. Right. Um, and then they can try and uh, play around with the, the tools that are there. Okay, great. I'll make sure there's a link there to the show notes. Um, you, you know, I was thinking about the poetry question. I thought, well, what is it that would make, you know, a real AI poem? And, and I was thinking about Hardy's 
Thomas Hardy's quote about poetry, he said, the poet wins our hearts by showing us his own. So maybe Deep Dream would be a, a start of a, a window into the AI's heart. And um, who knows what could emerge from that in time. I, I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of artists are interested in exploring um, you know, things that are impacting on society and making a statement about them. And I think you know, actually treating AI as the art um, is a really fascinating project. Um, you know, we, we need tools to examine this changing world and um, you know, the, the interaction between AI and the creative world um, will be a, you know, a really important dialogue as we go forward. Marcus, thank you so much. This has been a really mind-boggling conversation. I think I'm going to listen to this several times to get my head around some parts of it. I'm sure I won't be the only one among my listeners. The book, The Creativity Code, How AI is Learning to Write, Paint and Think, is a really fascinating exploration of, of these themes. So if you found this conversation, if you're listening to this, you found this conversation interesting, there's plenty more in Marcus's book. Marcus, is there anywhere else that, um, do you have a website or somewhere that people could go online and uh, engage with your work further? Um, I have a website. It's um, uk. Simone is the professorship that I hold. Um, uh, this is Charles Simone, who actually um, was one of the first to start developing code with Microsoft. Um, and he's uh, endowed a professorship called the Professor for the Public Understanding of Science. Um, so people can uh, go there. And that has a lot about all all my other activities, um, interactions with uh, the musical world, uh, artistic world, um, a play that I've written and some uh, information about other books and articles that I've written. So um, uh, hopefully people will enjoy exploring my creative outputs there. Excellent. And again, I'll make sure that is in the show notes. So Marcus, I think you've done a lot today already to further the public understanding of mathematics and AI. So thank you so much for your generosity and insight today. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you. You have been listening to The 21st Century Creative, hosted by Mark McGuinness. You can find the notes for today's show, as well as all the backlist episodes of the podcast, at 21stCenturyCreative.fm. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe in iTunes, and I'm always grateful for your reviews, and also for sharing the show with your friends and followers. If you'd like my help applying the ideas in the show to your own situation, you're welcome to join us in the 21st Century Creative Patreon group at patreon.com slash the 21st Century Creative. And if you are an experienced creative and you're curious about getting my help as a private coaching client, then the first step is to go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash coaching questions and answer the questions on that page. And I'll be in touch with you as soon as I've reviewed your answers. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again soon.